Welcome to week number two of Rockin' the Gospel, where we are taking a look at five hit songs from five different eras that touch on some of the most important truths when it comes to the biblical message of salvation, the gospel. Now, the word gospel simply means good news, but the good news begins with, well, bad news. Now, we just had Valentine's Day, so let's say that you were out for a, a nice romantic dinner, right? The atmosphere is perfect. Romantic music is playing. There's flowers. There's candlelight, right? The food is delicious. The presentation is on point, right? The mood is all set. When all of the sudden, several firefighters rush in, they grab you, they throw you over their shoulder, and they run you out of the restaurant, right? And you're screaming, what are you doing? And they yell back, we're saving you. From what are you crazy? You see, salvation isn't good news if you don't need saving. But let us say that there had been a gas explosion in the kitchen while you were out for your nice romantic evening. And the restaurant is engulfed in flames. You're, you are knocked to the floor. You hit your head. There's there's blood. There's smoke everywhere. You can't see anything. Your ears are ringing. And you can feel the heat closing in. And then the firefighters rush in. They carry you out. Now, that would be truly good news. Now they're they're heroes. Well, what I'm here to tell you today is that the building is on fire. There's smoke everywhere. And it's almost impossible to see which way to go unless there's someone who comes to save us. And time is running out. Now, last week, we looked at the source of the fire, you know, who started the fire, right? We saw that the devil is real. He is your enemy. He wants nothing more than to see you spend eternity with him in hell. Your destruction is his primary mission. Now, the devil is simply an angel who rebelled against God, and he is the origin, the source of evil in this world, right? Satan lit the match. He started the fire. But Satan didn't act as a lone wolf. He had some partners in his crime, right? Adam and Eve threw gasoline on that fire. They turned the spark into an inferno. And this brings us to uh, this week's kind of basic gospel truth, right? This is the other half of the bad news. And that is this. We are all sinners, right? We can't blame Satan for the mess that we're in. We can't blame Adam and Eve. We can't blame our mom or our dad. We can't blame anyone else because we have all been throwing gasoline on the fire ever since, right? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Now, in last week's song, The Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, uh, we saw that the devil was responsible for, for history's greatest evils, but 
The devil then asks for our sympathy because humanity, because we have been complicit in his crimes. He didn't act alone, and that's true. The devil hasn't done what he's done without our help. And that brings us to this week's song. Now, I have mentioned in my sermons before my nephew um, and our common love of music. All right, we're always you know sharing our new music discoveries. And last year, Mike sent me this link to a music video for for this week's song. And and I watched the video. And after watching it, my first thought, in fact, I, this is what I texted him wow, this would be a perfect sermon illustration. And it's one of the things that got my wheels turning and and gave me the inspiration for doing this series. But in this song, the, the singer confesses his lifelong struggle with sin. No matter how hard he tries, he can never seem to escape the failures of his past. And he feels like he's always caught in the middle of of right and wrong. And even though he tries to choose what is right, he finds himself choosing what is wrong again and again. Can you identify with that? Well, I know I can. The Apostle Paul could too. He writes in Romans 7, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now, the music video for this song is brilliant because it makes it very clear that this isn't just the singer's story. It's my story. It's your story. It's all of our stories because we're all sinners. Now, the singer's name is Jason DeFord, and the song details his personal struggles with right and wrong, especially his battles with addiction. In fact, he admits that he was high when he recorded the vocal track for the song. Now, he's a Nashville-based rapper who performs under the name Jelly Roll. Some of his earlier recordings have names like Pop Another Pill, Whiskey, Weed, and Women, Sobriety Sucks, and the Whiskey Sessions. So it's not really a shocker that that drink and drugs have both been a lifelong struggle for DeFord. But in 2021, Jelly Roll kind of drew upon his Nashville roots, and he released a country album called Ballads of the Broken. And that's a telling admission because right, we're all broken in some way. That's the reality, that's the results of we're all sinners. And one of the tracks on the album is called Son of a Sinner. And it became a a smash crossover hit last year. It reached number one on the Billboard Country Airplay charts and number four on the U.S. Hot Rock and Alternative Songs chart, where it stayed for 20 weeks. Now, the video features Jelly Roll sitting at a bar, lamenting his struggles. Um, But what happens as the song continues is fascinating. It's powerful. The character sitting behind the bar changes as the song continues. An elderly man, a young woman, black, white, right? This person, that person, and then another, right? It turns out it's every man, it's every woman, right? The struggle with sin is universal. And the Bible makes the exact same point. In Romans 3, the 
The Apostle Paul is writing about this universal problem with sin, and he quotes from Psalm 53. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And Paul wholeheartedly agrees with that diagnosis. And in Romans 3.23, if you only memorize a handful of verses, this should be one of them. But in this verse, Paul offers this summation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it's both a declaration and a definition. The declaration is that we are all sinners, every single one of us. Now, we could quibble about well, whose sins are worse, whose sins more, right? But every single be human being that I have ever known will admit that, that they have failed to live up to even their own standards, right? I failed to live up to my own standards of right and wrong. The problem is, is that I'm not the standard by which I'll be measured, right? And you're not the standard. God is. And the, there is the definition of sin. We have fallen short of God's glory. We fall short of his perfect standard. Right? I'm not being measured against anyone else in the church. I'm not being measured against my parents. I'm not being measured against my sister or my best friend. Right? I'm not being measured against a guy on death row, nor am I being measured against the winner of the humanitarian of the year award. No, the standard of measure is the glory, the purity, the holiness, the perfection of God, right? And that's a real problem, all right? And we all fall short, so far short. That's what the word sin actually means. It means to miss the mark. And when the mark is a perfect bullseye, right? no one of us can hit that every single time. All right, what makes sin sin isn't what the civil law says. Right? It isn't what any courtroom may decide. Sin isn't wrong because, well, the church says it's wrong. Right? Sin isn't bad because of your family upbringing or what society collectively thinks is right or wrong or what the latest opinion poll says. Sin is sin because of who God is and what it does to our relationship with him. Now, here's what I want to do in this message. I want to show you what sin does to you and what it does to your relationship with God by showing you what it did to the very first people who sinned. Right? Just as Jelly Roll's um, song is really our story, Adam and Eve's story is our story as well. The same thing that happened to them happens to us. Now, number one, sin makes God seem less loving. Sin makes God seem less loving. Sin colors our view of God so that we can't really see his care and compassion. Sin makes him appear more impersonal than he really is. We begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, and, and the scene here is that God has created Adam. He's placed him in the garden, 
And then God gives Adam some instructions regarding his place in this new creation. And here's what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you're reading this verse in your Bible, you're going to see where it says the Lord God, that Lord is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But in other verses, the word Lord is spelled big L, little O, little R, little D. And there's a reason for that. When it's all capitals, all right, that's not like in texting where you're shouting, right? The all caps means that the, the word being translated there is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. And it is Yahweh, who's also God, who's giving Adam these, well, personal, intimate instructions. God is appealing to Adam here on a relational basis, right? This isn't some uncaring, you know, almighty, powerful boss laying down the law for the little guy without regard to his personal circumstances. No, this is a loving father saying, here's what I've provided for your fulfillment and pleasure, but don't do this one thing, all right, because it will hurt you. And, and, and I'm telling you this because I love you. So capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is the personal name for God. And then God here is the word Elohim. Now, that's a title for God. Elohim is the, the God of power who created all things. And yes, God is powerful. But he commands Adam and Eve, not merely because he said so, because he has the power, but rather from a position of relationship because he loves them. Now, we turn to Genesis 3 for the rest of the story. And here's where we're introduced to Satan in the guise of a serpent who tempts Adam and Eve to eat from this uh, tree, this one tree that God said, don't eat. All right, so here's our enemy from last week showing up and causing problems. Now, we need to be careful as we go through the story here because Eve takes kind of this center stage role, but we can't blame Eve for what happens because Adam was right there with her. Verse six says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, right? He was there the whole time. He saw the whole thing. He heard all of this, but not once did he speak up. He didn't defend his woman, but he did what far too many men do when it comes to spiritual leadership in the family. He sat on his butt and he did nothing. He said nothing. Now, here's what happens. He said to the woman, and this is the serpent, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, I want you to notice here that Satan does not refer to God by his personal name. No capital L-O-R-D here. No Yahweh. He simply calls him God, Elohim. He doesn't want Eve or you to think of God as a relational, personal creator, but merely as someone in a position of power and authority. And he's also trying to create doubt in Eve's mind. He's causing her and Adam to question God's word. Did God actually say? And here's how this argument a lot of times sounds in our lives. Well, what do these words actually mean? Maybe there's a different way of interpreting this. You know other people view this differently. Perhaps you could look at God's word in a different light. There's a, a more enlightened understanding. And we begin to doubt. We begin to question. And Satan is trying to create space between Eve and her creator. And Eve falls victim to this way of thinking because when Eve answers the serpent, she doesn't call God by his name. She doesn't call him Yahweh. She simply calls him God, Elohim. And so she's now seeing God as an impersonal power. She's no longer looking at God relationally. She merely sees him as the, the source of rules and restrictions. He's now something that's getting in the way of what she wants. Sin makes God seem less loving. And sin will always try to get you to see God differently so that you will see God's truth differently. He wants us to shade the meaning just a little bit, to take something out here, to, to add a little something there. And we become that much more relationally distant from the lover of our souls. That's what sin does. It separates us from God and his love. All right. Secondly, sin makes our freedom seem smaller. When we don't see God in his love, we don't see him as trying to give good things to us. We see him trying to keep good things from us. His love decreases and our freedom seems smaller. So let's rewind. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 16 and 17. God's provision here is given in the most generous terms. You may surely eat of every tree. Other translations say you may freely eat of any tree. Right? This freedom is as big as it can possibly be. You can eat freely from every tree, any tree, not some trees, not most trees, but any of them. The entire garden is wide open for your enjoyment. It is all yours. Right? The only tree that was held back was for their protection. And to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil would not increase their freedom. It would actually mean the loss of it. Right, this is like a parent leaving for the night and telling their children, hey, eat whatever you want in the kitchen, but stay out from under the sink. Right? We don't want you chugging dish detergent. We don't want you eating Comet. Right? It's not because mom and dad are mean. It's because they love their children and they're trying to protect them. 
The most freedom that humanity has ever enjoyed was in the garden before the fall. No culture, no country, no followers of any philosophy have ever enjoyed the kind of freedom that Adam and Eve had in the garden. However, when Eve starts listening to the snake, she says this, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And that's how she described God's provision. We may eat of the trees. What's missing here? She's left out two words. Gone is the surely, and gone is the every. The two words that, that emphasized her freedom and God's generosity. We may eat of the fruit is simply not as deep and as rich as you may freely eat of every tree. Sin becomes more attractive to you the more that you downplay the generosity of God and the freedom that you have in Christ. Satan makes sin look more desirable by getting us to question the goodness and generosity of God. And when God doesn't seem as good, sin looks better. And here's the truth. Sin can never compete with God, right? It will never be as joyous, as loving, as generous, and as beautiful as God. In reality, sin is is nasty, disgusting, manipulative, selfish, and, and ugly. And so sin will always try to get you to see God as less than he is so that you feel trapped. And sin makes our freedom look smaller. So what we've seen so far is that sin makes God seem less loving. It makes our freedom seem smaller. And thirdly, sin makes God's rules seem bigger. Right? Sin makes the laws of God, the commands of God, more restrictive than they actually are. Now, there's no doubt, there's no question here that God gave them a command. You shall not eat of this tree. In fact, this is the first time in the Bible the word command is used. But we've already seen that this command comes from a place of love and relationship. God's commands are always because either he wants to give something good to you, or he wants to keep something bad from you. It's never the opposite. God never gives a command because he wants to keep something good from you, or he wants to give something bad to you. But Satan doesn't want us to see it that way. He's going to try to get you to see God's commands as more cumbersome than they are. And so listen to how Eve describes God's command. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. That's a pretty good synopsis of what God said. But does she stop there? Nope. She adds this, neither shall you touch it. Whoa. Wait a minute. Where did that come from? God never said that. Now she's just making stuff up. And Adam just sits there like a bump on a log, doesn't say a word. In their minds, they are seeing God's command as more prohibitive, more burdensome than they are. God comes across sounding like an angry parent here. Don't you even touch it. And sin will get us to minimize God's goodness and exaggerate the intrusiveness of his commands. Make them look bigger. So number one, sin makes God seem less loving. Number two, sin makes our freedom seem smaller. Number three, sin makes God's rules look bigger. And number four, sin makes the consequences seem 
less significant. The final subtle shift in Eve's retelling of God's command is that the consequences are kind of rounded down. They they sound less severe. She makes them seem smaller than they are. Now, back in chapter 2, here's what God tells them. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you translate this literally from the Hebrew, what it says is, dying you shall die. Now, that sounds a bit redundant, at least in the English. But in Hebrew, repetition is used for emphasis, right? That's why we read that God is holy, holy, holy. Jesus in his teaching would often say, truly, truly, I say unto you. In the Hebrew, it's word, one word, amen, amen. I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. Paul, who was raised as a Hebrew, said things like this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so what this means that you will surely die, this isn't like mostly dead in the princess bride. This is dead, dead. You will most definitely die. But look at what Eve does here and how she subtly shifts the meaning. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You might die. You could die. It's, it's a possibility. It's a potential. But that's not nearly as strong as you will surely die. Eve makes it sound like death is a possibility, but not a guaranteed certainty. And sin will get you to thinking that way. Oh, surely it can't be as bad as all that. Hell is just a metaphor. Eternity doesn't really mean forever. Surely a loving God wouldn't do that. And Satan wants you to see the consequences of your sin smaller than they really are. He wants you to think that the consequences maybe really don't apply to you. Oh, they might apply to other people in other situations, but not to me. I can get away with this because, well, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. I know when to stop. I know my limits. And I have really good reasons. God will understand. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, preacher. She's just summarizing what God said. She's just putting it into her own words. Maybe you're reading too much into these little differences. Perhaps. Not one of these little changes by itself is big. But when you put them all together, they get big. Satan uses temptation as a, as a powerful airbrush to make sin look more appealing. He adds a little more curve there. He takes out a few blemishes there. He smooths over that bit of ugliness. And all of the sudden, God seems harsh and uncaring in sin. Oh, it looks good. But it's all built on lies. They may be small lies, but when they're told together, they make a huge difference. So I don't think I'm reading too much into this. And, and the reason is, look what Eve, along with her husband, actually did, right? They believed those lies. They ignored God's command. They gave in and ate of the forbidden fruit. And this tells me they forgot that God's command was based on love 
for them. They overlooked the incredible freedom uh, that he gave them in creation, and they obsessed on the one thing that God said, nope. And their desire for sin's false promise was greater than their fear of sin's consequence. And that sin caused them to miss the heart of God. And that's what sin does to you as well. Now, towards the end of the song, Son of a Sinner, Jelly Roll holds out hope that although God may hate him at first, he will eventually save his soul. There is hope for salvation, and you need to know that. But it's more than a, a cross-your-fingers wish, a, a shot-in-the-dark chance. Our hope of salvation is based on something real. And this is where we get to the wonder and the miracle of the gospel, of the good news. Thank God that Romans 3.23 is followed by Romans 3.24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through, came by Christ Jesus. So yes, sin came into our world and screwed it all up. But God sent Jesus into our messed up world to save us from our sins. The Genesis or uh, Romans three twenty four contains three powerful and essential words in Christian theology. The first is redemption. It's the idea that we have been redeemed. This word this word means to be released or liberated. The idea is that because of our sin, we owe a fine, a penalty that we can never pay. All right, when you fall short of an infinite God, you owe an infinite debt. But God in his love through Jesus paid that penalty for us, right? No more guilt, no more penalty, no more fine. The second essential word here is justified. We are justified. The Greek word simply means to be, to, to render innocent. God didn't just make the fine disappear. He dealt with the problem of sin itself. An easy way to look at justified is this. Justified means justified never sinned. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he may, can make it just if I'd never sinned, just if you'd never sinned. When you're justified, God sees you without your failures and your mistakes. He actually gets rid of the sin in your life. He doesn't measure how far you've fallen short. Rather, he sees you as though you have hit the bullseye every single time, and he empowers you to actually hit the mark. The final powerful word here is grace, which simply means an undeserved gift. Now, many times in our lives, all right, Gifts are kind of a quid pro quo. There is a gift exchange, right? I give you a gift, you give me a gift. Right? I take you out to eat for your birthday and you take me out for my birthday. But that's not the kind of gift we're talking about here. This is something that is given. And not only did you exchange nothing for it, you've got nothing you could give, even if you wanted to, right? That's grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid the price for our sin. Here's what Paul writes later in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That loving relationship can be restored. Thank you. And God bless. <laughs>